Uh, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in First Peter again, First Peter chapter three, starting in uh, verse twelve. Um, typically, after somebody comes and says what Dave said right before he started praying about a husband and a father, our husband and a father and sisters and daughters that pass away in a week in one family, it's hard to come up and talk. But um, there, is a, there is a deep truth that is present. Uh, God offers hope and he offers it freely and it is strong and secure and more than we could ever fathom. Um, it's interesting. I wanted to start this morning with a simple statement. In all of life, there's always something more and bigger going on than the current circumstance. In all of life, there's always something more and bigger going on in the current circumstance. Always. We get so wrapped up in the, the physical and related in, in our context. We're looking for a place to, to have church. We get so wrapped up in a freaking building. So wrapped up in circumstance. And here's, here's another beautiful thought is I, I want to give you permission in, as you think about what just happened with a husband and daughters not alive anymore. Give you permission to doubt God. Give you permission to say why to get angry. We sang just a minute ago, no, no doubt restrains who God is. You're not big enough and neither is your doubt to change who God is and change the love that he has for you. You're not cool enough or strong enough to change some circumstance that happened in your life to change the fact that God loves you. There's not an adjective strong enough for the word, the way God loves you. Circumstances are circumstances, and there's so much more at play in the midst of them. I brought up some bricks here. You see these bricks that are here? You probably spent the morning wondering what they're about and why they're here. These are bricks that were part of my house that no longer are a part of my house. Um, if you've been by my house, and by the way, we're going to go by there today and write some prayers on the, the subfloors that's there, I uh, invite you to come and do that with us. Um, at one point in this rebuilding of my house, all that stood were bricks. The floors were gone, the walls were gone, the roof was gone, everything was gone. And in the midst of that, I'm walking around with a guy whose job is bricks. He's a mason. That's what he does. He examines bricks and examines their integrity and all this. And, and we're walking around the house and, and he's kind of pointing out what he's going to do, what he's going to change. He's going to take a window out here, replace it with other brick and all that stuff. I can show you at, this afternoon at the house if you want to check that out. But ultimately he says, we get to the spot where, where the tree hit, right? And he said that if it weren't for it being in the corner of, of the house. And the tree hit in the corner of the house where, where the bricks were. And he said if, if it wasn't for the fact that the tree hit in the corner of the house where it had this security and that security, that the tree that hit the house would have gone all the way to the ground, all the way to the, the basement floor. And when he said that... He was just kind of talking about just the security of brick and how strong brick is and blah, 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 whatever. All right? 
what I heard was my daughter was under that tree. And the security of the foundation of that brick saved the life of my child. He's just talking about brickwork, about the security of brick. And he's talking about how he's going to rebuild the brick and, and all those things and, and how it's profoundly important to, to have a brick house. And, and if my house had been built earlier or, or differently, then there would have been, it wouldn't have been quite as strong and, and we need brick to support everything and, and all of that, that that's happening. And all I'm hearing is if it hadn't been for the security of the brick, the tree would have been in the basement and my daughter is under it. And I'm thinking about foundation. And this morning, I'm going to talk about hope and I'm going to talk about hope a lot. And hope is absolutely foundational. I didn't expect and I didn't want to have to hear a story that Dave, we're praying at 8.30 this morning and when Dave got the text about this disaster and I didn't expect to have something hit that close to home about how vital it is for us to have a secure and foundational hope. And these, these bricks are nothing more than bricks. And if my house had been made of wood or if it had hit in the middle of the house instead of on the corner where there, there was a solid security of two bricks coming together, whatever. I don't even want to think about that. But the fact of the matter is we have a hope that is steadfast and secure. Hebrews 6.19 says, We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And that sure and steadfast anchor of the soul is a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. This anchor of the soul, that is hope, is founded in the fact of who Christ is. And nothing can change that. No doubt that you have, no anger that you have, none of that changes this anchor of the soul that is Christ. So I want to spend some time thinking about two words this morning as before we get into the text. First, it's hope. And on the back of your bulletin, is th- these two words are defined. And, and we're going to talk about hope and, and what it provides us, which is meekness. Um, and it, these are religious words that we think we know. And I want to tear that down and rebuild this. Hope is a gift given to the deepest part of your soul used to endure hardship, presser, pressure, and stress, and give peace that satisfies. This is hope, and it's the anchor of your soul, so that when storms come and trees destroy and cars collide and take life, the hope is still the hope, and it's still the anchor of your soul, and it's rooted in Christ. And his finished work. And it gives a peace that satisfies. In just a second, we'll, we'll look at how Peter encountered this deep truth. So this hope that's an anchor for our soul produces meekness. And most of the time when we hear the word meek, we think of some gentle, sweet, probably older and overweight lady. That's what 
this, is, this represents meek. And that's completely false. Meekness really is, is, I know something that you don't know. In the death of that husband and father and those daughters and the destruction of my house, there's a peace that comes from the fact that we know there is something more in play, that I know something that the world doesn't know. Christ is in charge. Meekness, the state of mind that labels God's dealings with us as good and that God is for you and not against you always. Always. So turn to, I, I know I told you to go to Matthew, or to, to 1 Peter 3, but the verse is going to be above you as well. Matthew 16. Um, Peter is going to tell us, teach us, the people in 1 Peter that he's writing to, he's going to teach us a lesson that Christ taught him before. And the lesson is there's always something bigger going on in your life than what you're currently experiencing, than your current circumstance. Starting in verse 21. From that time, actually, let's, let's, let's back up and go to verse 16. Simon Peter replied, after Jesus said, who are you? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And when he says Christ, he's not using a last name for Jesus, using a term for Jesus. You are the Messiah, the chosen one, the one that was promised throughout all the course of the history of the Old Testament that is going to come and free us and give us life and give us hope and give us peace. That's what he's saying. You are the Messiah, the chosen one from God. You are anointed and sent here by God to give us freedom. That's what Peter is proclaiming here to him. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Christ, Jesus, answered him, Blessed are you. Blessed, I have, you have a knowledge that people don't have. You have a, a perspective of who I am that people don't have. Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, what he's saying, the rock is the fact that I am the Christ. I am the one that's come to change your life, to change, to give you hope and to give you a future. And, and I am the anointed one of God to bring freedom. Upon that rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. An automobile crash will not prevail against it. A tornado will not prevail against it. The, the fact of the matter is that he is Christ and whatever happens in this world will never change that. This is the confession of Peter to Christ, and Christ says, yes. And that foundation, that, the firmness of that foundation can't be shaken, and it's that foundation I'm going to build life on. I'm going to build the church on. And Peter, you got it right. And here's the beautiful thing. Like six verses later, go down to verse 22. 21. Just a few verses later, Peter is an idiot. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and said and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter is concerned with the current circumstances. 
He's not concerned with the fact that he's talking to the anointed one of God who is willingly giving himself up. Verse 23, but he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter learns this lesson, and he teaches it to us 2,000 years later in 1 Peter. So flip over to, to 1 Peter. Get to our text from, from this morning. And I'm, I'm fired up. I'm shaken. This is because uh, this is an absolutely vital, essential text for us to completely own. We've, we've, got to, we've got to own this. Because here's, here's the, the ridiculous thing that's going to be hard for you to hear. This girl, this mom, these daughters in Bolivar, Missouri, why wasn't that one of us? But God is still God either way. What if one of us doesn't make it here next Sunday? Does that change the security of who God is? Does that change the fact that he's Christ? No. And the, the thing is, is, I've said this so many times as we're walking through this, this series, Peter is writing to people who in 18 months from these words are going to be impaled and burned alive on a stake so that some ridiculous ruler can have sex and have light under it. That's what's going to happen to the people reading this. Peter, pouring hope into these people, secure, steadfast, unchanging hope. Verse 13 of 1 Peter 3. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? This is a huge teaching. that We're, we're going to talk through about 11 verses here this morning. And this is big and so I don't want to get bogged down in specific terms and words, but this is beautiful. Who is there to harm you? Who is there to harm you? What is there to harm you? But even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Verse 14 is beautiful because it gives us four very secure things we can hold on to. When you suffer, according to verse 14, you will be blessed. And a blessing, probably said it 20, 30 times while the pastor of North Church. A blessing is not finding $20 on the sidewalk. A blessing is not a, an awesome doctor who revives your husband. A blessing is having a greater knowledge and perspective and understanding of who God is. When you suffer, you will be blessed. And suffering is coming. And here is Peter pouring a lesson of hope into us that Christ poured into him a couple of years before it. Laying the foundation for hope that what happens here on this world, in this world, is not eternal. It's not what we're looking for. It's not the point of life. There is something bigger going on in your circumstance than you have any idea. You will be blessed. 
He also says, have no fear. I learned at the Catalyst Conference a couple weeks ago, you know what the one, the single most used command for us in Scripture is? Don't fear. Don't fear. I said a minute ago, what happens if one of us doesn't show up here next week? Don't fear. What happens when your house is destroyed? Don't fear. What happens when your husband is gone? Don't fear. What happens when you, your loved one is impaled on a stick and set on fire? Don't fear. When you suffer, you will be blessed and have no fear, nor be troubled. Do not be troubled. You have a hope. Peter said earlier in like the first sentence of his epistle, you have an inheritance that cannot perish, cannot spoil, cannot fade, is kept in heaven for you. You have an inheritance that cannot perish, cannot spoil, cannot fade, is kept in heaven for you. It can't be touched. That's meekness right there. I know something that you don't know. As you impale me on a stick, as you destroy my life, as you attack me, I know something that you don't know. I have an inheritance that cannot perish, cannot spoil, cannot fade, kept in heaven for me, that that husband enjoys now. Woo! The last thing he says, the, the first thing he says in verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord. When you suffer, honor Christ the Lord. Honor, I attach value to you. When I suffer, the value that I find in you is greater than the value that I find in my current circumstance, which may or may not be taken away from me. And here's the, here's the beauty thing here. Verse 15, after the comma, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. A lot of times we think this about, okay, how can we... Always be ready to give a defense for what you believe in the midst of circumstance. This isn't telling us to, to study about foundation and evolution and creation and, and to give a, a reason for the hope that you have, a reason for what you believe. Here, in the midst of this, when suffering comes in you, be ready, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you because people aren't going to understand what meekness is all about. They don't, because you know something they don't know. The inherent truth in that is that you don't, they don't know it. What, how are you smiling and happy and laughing when this tragedy is going on in your life? Give a reason for the hope that is in you. Why do you smile when you suffer? Yet, the end of verse 15, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. All right, so we've talked a lot about ourselves. Let's, the last part of, of what we'll talk about this morning starts in verse 18, and it's all about Christ, who has endured a suffering that we will never approach. So go down to verse 18. For Christ, again, 
Whenever you read the word Christ, don't read a name. It's a definition of who he is. The anointed one that God chose to come and save you. For the anointed one who God chose to come and save you also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh but being made alive in the spirit. This is a beautiful verse. Looking for something to memorize? Memorize this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God so that hope could live in us. And he's put to death in the flesh. I don't care about what happens to this body. That's what Christ is is proclaiming to you. But being made alive in the Spirit. This verse brings to life a foundational doctrine that's called substitutionary atonement. All right? Don't be afraid. Substitutionary atonement. Big seminary words. Don't be afraid. They're very simple. Very simple. Substitutionary atonement. Christ stood in our place and represented us. As our representative, he took the penalty that we deserve. That's from a dude that's really smart named Wayne Grudem who wrote a book called Systematic Theology that's like that thick. We get consumed with these big substitutionary atonement words, but this is the foundational doctrine that Christ and Peter is laying, are laying for us here in this moment. Substitutionary atonement. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. We can't do it. We need somebody to do it for us. Substitutionary atonement. What is the it? Bring us to God. Christ stands in our place because we can't. It's beautiful. In the midst of this discussion about suffering and what it looks like, here is Christ, the Son of God, the anointed one of God, dying for you, separated from God for the first time all eternity past, doesn't have communion with the Father, we, we don't understand the depth of that. We can't understand the depth of that. Suffering there, not returning that suffering for, not returning that evil with evil, but instead saying, I gladly accept this because he's filled with meekness, because he understands something is happening bigger than himself and bigger than the present and bigger than this current circumstance. He knows something that they don't know. You know something that they don't know. Skip down to, to verse 19, the next verse. 19 through 21, bring some hard thoughts and concepts, and we're going to talk about them. We're not going to talk about them very long. Uh, I, I want to spend some time talking about why we're not going to talk about them very long, because they're, they're ancillary to the point that Peter is trying to make here, the point that God is trying to make in your heart. And we can, Scripture is filled with these little things where we can 
miss the real point of what God is trying to communicate to us, and we get so consumed with, with something that we don't really understand or, or is kind of strange to us and, and maybe sensational and like a Jerry Springer-type sensational, like it draws our attention to, to something, like we're driving down the road and we see a car accident and we all want to do like that. That's sensational, and these verses can bog us down in the sensational and, and confuse us and, and get us off track. All right? So... But they're in Scripture, so I want to deal with them. Talking about Christ, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What does that mean? Who is he talking about? And what is this word spirit? This word spirit is a Greek word called pneuma. And it's the same Greek word that, that is used in Scripture in the New Testament for angels. And it's the same Greek word in Scripture when it talks about the human spirit. So we have nothing to to delineate which one he's talking about. Is he talk, when he, he proclaimed to the spirits in prison, these could be angels who fell from heaven when God cast Satan out of heaven with his angels. Those spirits. Or they could be human spirits who died apart from God. We don't know. And to spend time arguing about it is to take away from what Peter is really trying to communicate to us here. All right? Because they formerly did not obey, which those who did not obey could be the human spirits or could be the angelic spirits. We don't know. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism corresponds to this. Verse 21. Now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through resurrection of, Christ, of Jesus Christ. Okay. Verse 21 just said, and here's another point that we can get bogged down on, but I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I want to communicate it. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. We could stop there and get really confused because what Peter just said was baptism now saves you. And if you've ever, several of you have been through the baptism class that we talk about. Several of you have been through the membership class that we talk about. And, and we stand firmly that baptism has nothing to do with your salvation. It does not save you. Is that in contradiction to what we just read? No. Let me explain. Quickly, because I don't want to get off track of the point at hand. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. Talking about flesh. Baptism does not change your flesh. Doesn't clean you. Does, isn't a removal of dirt from your body. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. What this is telling us is that baptism is a sign of an essential thing that has to happen inside of us. And that is a belief, an acknowledgement that Christ has been risen from the dead. That we are dirty, and Christ has been risen from the dead to clean us. And it's that that is foundational, that can't be shaken, that is essential for salvation, not the act itself. And when he says, this is not to clean you, this is to proclaim an appeal that you've made to God because I'm jacked up. Baptism. If you want to talk more about that, about either one of these two things, find me afterwards and we'll talk about it. I'd love to sit down and have lunch or coffee or... You can drink coffee, I'll drink something else, um, and we'll talk about it as long as you want to talk about it. But this morning, the point is hope in Christ, and verse 22. 
through the resurrection of Christ, of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. I want to conclude with this notion that verse 22 brings and reinforces our initial notion that we are in need of hope to steadfastly anchor our soul and bring meekness. That Jesus presently is at the right hand of God and all things are subject to him. All things are subject to him who sits at the right hand of God. This is the God that we serve, that provides us with the hope. It's, it's what we read here that's, that we can look in the face of tragedy. We can look in the face of difficulty. We can look in the face of even people around us who fail us, who were supposed to be given to us to, to lay their lives down for us, to secure us, to, to be with us, to protect us, who don't. God is in control of that and wants to get your mind off of now and onto him. You remember what Jesus said to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You're worried about now. I'm worried about eternity. As we suffer, remember the words of Christ. As we suffer, remember the words of Peter. He is in heaven and he's at the right hand of God with the angels and authorities and powers, and they're all subject to him. There's nothing on this planet that's not subject to him and nothing on this planet that God is not going to use to bless you, to bring you into a deeper, more beautiful, communing, abiding relationship with him. Bring a couple of verses to reinforce Isaiah 50, verse 9. Look, a shout of proclamation from Isaiah. Pay attention. Look, the Lord helps me. Who will harm me? The Lord helps me. Who will harm me? Can't wait to get to my house this afternoon and write that on the floor. The big, fat, purple Sharpie. Romans 8, 31 through 33. Then shall we say these things, to these things, God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare his own son, but he delivered him over for us all. How will we not also with him freely give us all things? When you suffer and want to whine and cry and feel sorry for yourself, Allow Romans 8.32 to speak over your, your life. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Take a deep breath of hope. And know this, in all of life, there is always something more and bigger going on than the current circumstance. Let's pray and sing really loud.
God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this beautiful opportunity to gaze upon your hope. God, allow us each to breathe in deep your hope. And God, would you root it deep into our souls? A hope that transforms our lives, God. A hope that can stare into the face of tragedy or hardship or pain or suffering and say, good. God, we can't plant that hope inside of us. We need you to do it. God, would you plant it in us? Would you allow it to be the anchor of our soul? God, I thank you so much for persevering your word, your scripture, your Bible, to to preach these truths to our hearts. God, I pray for people around this woman and, and these daughters in Bolivar. To, would you descend your hope upon her in a profound way, in a supernatural, miraculous way, God? Because she knows something that the world doesn't know. God, we give our lives to you, Father. God, we want to trust you. We want to trust you more. Teach us how. Christ's perfect name.